Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming state election in Victoria, including a focus on particular marginal seats. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Elle Gibbs. Elle is a writer and disability activist with an unhealthy interest in Senate committees. Welcome, Elle. Hey, Ben. How are you going? Good, thanks. My second guest is Paddy Manning. Paddy does daily political analysis for The Monthly and is writing a book on the Greens. Hello, Paddy. G'day, Ben. So we are now less than four weeks out from the state election in Victoria. Both major parties launched their campaigns last weekend with the Liberal Party's Matthew Guy focusing on law and order, while Labor Premier Daniel Andrews focused on health spending. State polling has been sparse, but has consistently given Labor a small lead. Labor has polled 51 to 53% of the two-party preferred in all six statewide polls conducted this year so far. Over two episodes, we're going to focus on different parts of the election, looking at marginal seats in different regions of Victoria as well as the Upper House. We're going to start today by discussing the Greens' marginal seats. The Greens now hold three seats in the Victorian Legislative Assembly. They won the seats of Melbourne and Paran at the 2014 state election, then picked up the seat of Northcote at a by-election in 2017. They are also within striking distance of Richmond and Brunswick, two other Labor seats in the inner north of Melbourne. Paddy, what do you think are the key issues in the contest between the Greens and their major party rivals for these inner city seats? Uh, ben, I think the um, the issue for the Greens is um, is whether they can you know hang on to uh, those symbolic issues. I think um, that have really propelled them to those high primary votes they've got in the inner north of Melbourne. You know, in the context of a quite left-leaning, you know, state government. Uh, so is climate and uh, transition to renewable energy, is that any more a big selling point for the Greens uh, when you've got a quite aggressive, um, you know, pro-renewable stance from the state Labor government? Uh, public transport, you know, both major parties are spending money um, hand over fist on public transport projects. Will the Greens get much traction there in some ways? you know, parts of their agenda have been kind of appropriated. Uh, and I think the other thing for the Greens is to try and manage their own kind of um, internal kind of divisions mm. um, that they've got in that kind of heart, inner north heartland uh, at a branch level. Mm. So, El, why don't we start by discussing the those policy differences? Like, it's definitely a challenge for the Greens when they have a, a Labor government um, but particularly one that sort of positioned itself as being a lot more progressive. Uh, how do you think that, uh, that the Greens can handle that challenge? Look, it is a big challenge for them, and I think particularly that representing the seats that they do, they're just not going to actually get to the stuff that Labor talks about in terms of the suburban vote. So they don't really talk about education, they don't really talk about health, those kind of things. And I think the Greens are taking a fairly narrow niche approach to this election to win those particular seats um, and not talking about those kind of broader progressive issues, which I think is a mistake. But I think that it's um, they're taking that, oh, we, this is how we're going to win these seats, but not actually looking at how to um, put a, a progressive or, a, say, a more left agenda, particularly on economics or on infrastructure so there's been some big fights around housing in the inner city, um, around the public housing estates there and what's happening to them. And I think that that would have been a very good chance for the Greens to really build some alliances outside of that. Um, that I'm going to be a bit of a... I'm going to make some broad generalisations here, but outside of their high education, uh, high income voters... Uh, but to make the sort of slight inroads into some more middle ground and, you know, 
you know, dare I even say, poor people um, in terms of who might vote for them. It's interesting because um, I've seen the same phenomenon in Sydney in like the seats like Newtown and Balmain where the base of the Greens in those seats is definitely a sort of upper middle class professional base but those electorates still have a kind of public housing core and the Greens MPs certainly spend a lot of time working in those communities and sort of trying to break through in those sort of spaces and I know that Adam Bant uh, has done a lot of work in those communities in Melbourne um, but it has it, it well, doesn't... To be frank about that Ben that, that's just kind of what local MPs do because housing, yeah. particularly public housing, is so awful and the housing departments at times can be so difficult to deal with. Um, a lot of the work of an electorate office is managing those relationships and dealing with that. I know that um, Jamie Starr, for example, in, in Balmain, spent, I think, about a third of their, their work was about housing and I think that that's where um, that's happening. But those estates in Sydney, uh, as well as in Melbourne, those inner city estates are being sold off and... Um, redeveloped, so-called redeveloped, and so those communities are being moved out of those areas. Um, and whether they take any kind of allegiance to the Greens with them um, will be interesting. Well, I think probably what those communities that the Greens may gain a few votes there, but they're not really the group that underpins their electoral base in those communities. And I think sometimes there's a there's a sense from like the. the the people who who are the base, the kind of middle class base that wants to see that the Greens are working on some of those things, but in the end they're not really the ones that are that are critical in sort of setting setting where the Greens where the Greens are. But um, no, and and you're not seeing I think that the missed opportunity to potentially build bridges between those two communities to actually see the the well off members of the communities come out and defend. Um, members, you know, people who live in public housing and who are marginalised members of the community. I mean, it's nice to talk about it around a dinner party, but are they actually kind of down there, uh, you know, protesting about, you know, selling off public housing? Well, I'm not seeing any, a lot of that. I mean, this is a this was a federal election, but I certainly remember going to, uh, you know, the bottom of a housing commission. Um, Block. But yeah, there with um, Jason Ball, who was you know taking on Kelly O'Dwyer in the in the electorate of Higgins, and uh, they spent a hell of a lot of time working those um, housing commission blocks because nobody ever did, nobody ever had before. It may be that it is bog standard kind of electorate work, but yeah. Anyway, they were I I was uh, quite struck by yeah how, how they were on first name terms with uh, you know with the with the people who ran the kind of you know housing committees in those blocks and. And uh, it felt it all felt quite genuine. Genuine. They got a good turnout, and uh, it didn't feel token, even though it was, um, you know, in the middle of an election campaign. Well, one thing I wonder about with this sort of the the sort of presence in you know housing estates and things like that is, in my experience of the Greens, it's often a thing that they do only when they're like it's quite labour intensive and time intensive, and it's often a symptom of of a, the Greens putting a lot of effort into a seat. Mm. Maybe money, but it's it's also just sometimes it's a lot of time gets spent there while they're spending money elsewhere. But it's it's the sort of thing that often comes with those marginal seat campaigns, which makes me wonder a bit about one of the other things I found really fascinating about Melbourne is that particularly at the last federal election, the last state election, the uh, Greens vote in Victoria largely stayed steady, 
but the the distribution of that vote really got concentrated in the city in the inner cities so like l what you were saying about like the spread of the suburban greens vote there was a time where the greens had these ambitions of expanding rapidly into the suburbs whereas it seems now like if anything their vote in the outer suburbs of the rural areas has gone down a bit and they've been able to kind of heap up larger numbers in those inner cities which is is part of the reason why the greens have so many more prospects of winning seats in in, in a Melbourne at a federal level, but we haven't seen a big increase in that vote. So I think that also plays into that dynamic of, you know, are the Greens a broad national party or are they, like, concentrating on these inner-city seats? And I think that that probably reflects in their sort of stagnation in the upper house as well because you can't win those upper house seats without having a fairly broad... I don't know, at least being able to to have a broader vote across this stage, but um, particularly with the regional areas the way they do it in Victoria. But, um, I mean, it worries me because I just, I, I, you know, going back to that sort of public housing tenants and that kind of stuff, I'm not seeing them joining the Greens and becoming candidates. And so um, I think that that's where I, that's, I suppose, where part of my cynicism comes from, that the Greens candidates largely, and this is a broad generalisation, reflect that um, upper middle class uh, vote and you know, reflect the people who are mainly voting for them. And, you know, while that can... Uh, they can talk about progressive stuff and talk about um, issues that affect upper-middle-class people who live in the inner city, that's fine, and if that's the party they want to be. But I don't think, then, that they can call themselves off the left. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, another thing as well that I found really fascinating about Northcote is... Um, and I think this plays into the sort of symbolic issues that may not necessarily affect a lot of the people in those communities, that um, there, there's been this really big competitive fight between Labor and the Greens over Indigenous affairs in Northcote. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that, yeah. but yeah. the um, the Labor Party is, is very strongly making its claim as being the party that can, you know, deliver on a treaty or things like that. And the Greens have pushed back on that very strongly. You know, they have an Indigenous local member and things like that. I mean... Victoria generally has a relatively low proportion of the community who are um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander compared to other parts of Australia, but uh, Northcote in particular, like there is a very, there's a very small Indigenous population in that seat, and uh, like that is not the only reason why they work on those issues. But I found it fascinating that it's become a kind of a focal point in that electorate, and partly that reflects the identity of the local member, but it's. Um, it's not really reflect, you know, they're not they're not competing over a large um, indigenous voting block or anything. It's sort of it, the voters who are critical in that electorate remain white voters and you know other other communities. But it's become such a big issue in that electorate um, that but kind I of reflects. But I think Lydia is one of the people that I was thinking about when I was saying I'm being I'm generalising here because she's actually um, developed really strong connections with the broader Aboriginal community, and I think throughout the. Um, the, the, the fights around the treaty in Victoria, she was central to that. And she's also become a really central figure for the young Aboriginal activists. And I think that that actually is good for the Greens in terms of connecting them with the activists on the ground and with campaigns um, is actually really good. And I think that that suits Northcote as a seat very well uh, compared to a seat like Paran or Melbourne mm. um, or Richmond for even. I think that it suits a seat like Northcote um, better than those other seats. Having just, you know, come in on an 11% swing, it's pretty hard to see her getting voted out 
now, wouldn't you think? Uh, that electorate, probably. I reckon, is probably proud to have the first Aboriginal woman in the Victorian Parliament and then of the role that she's played in those treaty negotiations, even if she's now even if she's now kind of turning into a critic of the process. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, she, in terms of the Batman by-election, because you can look at Batman and say, well, you know, not everything is going in one direction for the Greens, but no. they actually consolidated their vote in the southern end of the Batman, which is the same area as Northcote. So they, you know, if that if that Batman by-election had been conducted on the Northcote boundaries, they would have won. So I, th- I think she's got a good chance of being re-elected. Um, but, uh, I mean, you can clearly see that Labor is still competing over those seats in it, and it's not a it's not an inevitable consequence that Labor Labor will keep losing ground in these electorates. No, no, well, no. post Batman, um, yeah. My understanding from Labor is that they saw that as well. Obviously, that was a um, uh, you know uh, turning point for them, and um, you know, as I understand it, the lesson is no more, um, you know square pegs in round holes so they talk about you know what tim colbatch has written about um the you know feeny drag uh with the old um member and and now in jed carney they've found the right candidate for that electorate and they believe that they can do um you know the same thing in places like what is it mcnamara now is it melbourne ports Mm. or um and you know i suppose potentially some of these other you know i don't know about wills but um but uh, some of these other state seats as well maybe can be rested back. One thing I find fascinating about that is, I mean, I, I grew up in Sydney, involved in um, politics in Sydney a decade ago, and it seems like New South Wales Labor, for all their other flaws, learnt that lesson of kind of running the kinds of candidates who appeal to those electorates to see off the Greens a decade ago. You know, Albanese and Plibersek were always better at at uh, combating those seats than um, than the kinds of people who ran in Batman or Melbourne ports for Labor. And at a state level too, you know, people like Verity Firth very much appealed to that community. And it seems like Victorian Labor had a bit of a delay in learning that lesson. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things. That Labor can beat uh, the Greens on the left. And I think that having Jed as a, as a candidate and, the, you know, the, the entire weight of the union movement behind her was a very good... Uh, candidate for the seat, but also she's going to be a good local member. She knows what she's doing and is yeah, not going to be Feeney. Um, but, but I think Labor has to make some decisions, particularly at a state level, about where they're going to put their resources. Um, are they going to fight the Libs for government in the Burbs, or are they going to fight the Greens for a seat or two in the inner city? And I think that they, they need to make some decisions around that, just in terms of the pure mathematics of elections, about you know, resources and people and where they're actually going to pour that, that kind of time and money and, and personnel into. Well, if you go by today's news poll, they might not need to worry too much, you know. <laughs> I mean, if it's 54-46. I mean, I thought it had been a tight election uh, up until today and now it looks as though uh, Labor's really, you know, post uh, Scott Morrison, Labor's really got uh, momentum. Mm. But it also, I think, shows that, that say, guys, uh, focus on law and order hasn't actually been as effective as he thought it was going to be and there's been an, like a lot of uh, close campaigning by, by Liberal candidates in local electorates about crime and uh, talking about how terrible the crime is and it's all terrible and we'll solve it with the CCTV and uh, and that hasn't actually cut through at all which has mm. been, I think it's really quite interesting in terms of that news poll. Well I thought the red shirt scandal would hurt Labor more <laughs> but it hasn't. Yeah. 
Look, I just, there's one thing I do want to say about the Greens, because I had a little little dust-up with them about a month ago. Um, they, there was a, a, a news article in The Age about how a couple of Greens councillors on Moreland Council had uh, prioritised um, cycling over accessibility. And uh, I made some snarky comment. And, uh, and the reaction was quite interesting in terms of where the Greens see themselves and how the Greens see themselves. And they were... They seemed quite hurt by the fact that I'd made a snarky comment about um, why they were prioritising cycling over accessibility. Um, and so, but they have made a big push around trying to make transport more accessible, which is good. Uh, Labor has also done that a little bit uh, in terms of uh, some of that. It's going to be a key election in the, a key issue in the New South Wales election as well, because all of the uh, accessibility timetables that were signed up for to you know 15 years ago have all expired and no one has got even close to, to meeting accessibility standards that they committed to. So um, it's going to be, a, it, it is an issue and this cycling versus accessibility became this big thing in the inner city and it was quite interesting in terms of the way people reacted and I thought it was quite emblematic of, of I was accused of being both a Labor stooge and a Green stooge and a Liberal stooge and I thought that was interesting. Um, but it was, Jeez. It, yeah, I know, <laughs> impressive. Um, but the Greens were quite upset about, you know, Labor lies and Labor were quite upset about Greens not caring about people. And I thought that that was a kind of interesting uh, emblematic thing about the way that their relationship is in the inner city and the kind of fights that they get into. Um, because I don't actually think that those kind of fights would happen too much in inner Sydney. We're, we're learning a lot more about the real political differences between, Labor, say, the Labor left and the Greens, that I would often think that a lot of the disagreements are about theory of change or how they think the politics works. And there is a big element of that, but there are points at which they can diverge in terms of which things they really care about. And you, these sort of issues, these sort of divisions that wouldn't have come up in a Labor versus Liberal fight uh, mm. emerge and sort of show the, the, multi, the multi-dimensional complexity of our politics. So, Paddy, you mentioned before about, uh, like, the conflict in the Greens in the inner city. Uh, Alex Batal, who was the candidate for Batman at the by-election earlier this year, uh, that that by-election was dominated in part by her conflict with the local councillors in Darabin. She's yep. also a close ally of the member for Northcote. Um, yeah, So the question is whether that campaign will really fire um, to, you know, help Lydia retain Northcote. Uh, whether those branches will, you know, function because in in the in the in the federal by election, as I understood it, um, there's you know they almost ran dead in some parts because the volunteers just didn't turn up um, because there was this horrible you know bullying smear campaign thing going on and um, uh, well there's been a review there's not really been an outcome um, will those branches rally and and turn out for Lydia and then also I suppose also for you know the campaigns in Brunswick and Richmond and Paran so so yeah I think it's kind of really unpredictable and also I think that the uh, as I understand it the state party has lost donors uh, since the Batman slash Cooper by-election. And so how well-funded are they? Now, I, I, I must admit, I, I should know the answer to that question, but I haven't actually spoken to the party to ask. But uh, 
But yes, yeah, so the question is how effective, you know, they've had this amazing ground campaign that's worked for them in Melbourne. You know, they've had their people going over and learning from Obama and doing all their, you know, phone trees and uh, an amazing kind of uh, ability to, well, just if you look at the primary votes that they get, certainly at a federal level, there's nothing else like it around the country as to what happens in Melbourne. And yet they've just had this kind of hole blown in the heart of their best territory mm. and so the question is how, how's it how's it going to work it's going to be a fascinating election to watch uh, in four weeks time how, how they actually and I, i'm looking forward to going down there to see how how they actually campaign mm. does victoria i don't know whether this has changed since uh since like you ben i was involved a, a decade ago ago but victoria had a fairly centralized structure of the greens uh they didn't have a lot of power at the local level to pre-select candidates decide preferences or to run their own campaigns and I do wonder whether that has kind of contributed to this kind of un- unease and unsettling. Um, so when you have local councillors, um, that can kind of increase power at the local level. And when the, the local branches or the local groups don't actually have any uh, actual power, that can be where some of that tension comes from. Because they've got increased representation, but they don't actually have power to make decisions locally. And that can really disempower members and can lead to a lot of ill feeling uh, over time. And it's something that I think New South Wales has hung on to uh, uh, at, at times under a lot of pressure from the national uh, body mm. uh, to have that power stay with local groups. And I think that it has kept... Um, it keeps keeps local groups busy and it also keeps them focused on because um, they have a lot more say and a lot more stake in what is actually happening. So I do think that sort of decentralising of power down to the local groups um, gives people a bit more of a stake in what's happening. I, I would just like to say on the um, concentration thing, you know, the idea that the Greens, um, you know, get a concentra- strong concentrated vote in the inner city, there is a, there is a merit to that. Hmm. Uh, if you can, if you imagine a future in which you know perhaps Labor and the Greens go into coalition more regularly, uh, state level and federal level around the country, um, if you know, I I started to imagine a kind of offsetting uh, relationship to the relationship between the Libs and the Nats, and you know the Greens get twice as many votes as the Nationals on a you know countrywide. Um, you know, 1.3 million or whatever, but they're just spread out all over the place if they were concentrated a little bit more, not losing votes, but actually, Mm. you know, doing better in the inner cities of, you know, Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, then, then, you know, you could have a much stronger lower house presence, um, you know, uh, uh, in in those big cities. And, um, yeah, maybe Labor's going to win so strongly uh, in this state election in Victoria that, you know, the question of a minority government or a balance of power won't come up. But it could, you know, if they pick up three or four seats in the lower house, it could be really interesting. Do you, think, do you think Labor and the Greens in Victoria would ever have the kind of relationships like the Liberals and the Nationals, though? Like, it, it just seems to me that in Victoria, the relationship is particularly toxic and mm. not not improving in any way, shape or form. So, I, yeah, I, th- I think we're... Certainly long, more than New South Wales. I think we're a long way away from that. And I was actually going to mention New South Wales, though, because one of the things that's interesting about the New South Wales state election, which will be the main topic when we come back, after Christmas on this podcast, you know, the Greens now hold three seats in New South Wales. They're the two seats they hold in seats that they've kind of wrested away from Labor in the inner city of Sydney are relatively safe 
maybe not completely safe, but relatively safe. Their one marginal seat and the seat that they have the best chance of gaining are both contests against the Nationals, where Labor Labor has a chance, but the, it's primarily a Nationals contest. And you could imagine a situation in March next year where Labor and the Greens aren't really going head-to-head very much in any of those races. And... Um, that that is a very interesting thing to see because we've never really seen that before. The Greens certainly have never had safe seats, and I wouldn't want to say that Balmain, for example, is completely safe. But I think I think there's Newtown's an element there. Newtown, Newtown, yeah, absolutely. I could imagine. I think it's a long way away from happening, and I think probably there's something about the philosophy of the Greens that makes this harder to happen. And I think probably the path towards of a, a constructive relationship in the long term between Labor and the Greens relies on a change in the electoral system to the kind of thing we see in the ACT. Having said that, I think probably if they ended up in the balance of power, Labor would come to the table and they'd find a way to cope. But I think probably usually the first time they do these, it doesn't work as well. And then they kind of work out how to work together in a way that doesn't lose their identity over time. And uh, it's sort of an ongoing process. Mm. Well, I saw Andy Green's blog talking about how... um well, maybe maybe Labor could just kind of dare the Greens to vote them down, um, you know, on confidence or something, if, mm. if it actually did come to a minority Labor government, uh, which, of course, it's impossible to imagine that the Greens would do that to the Andrews Labor government. So, uh, to me, anyway. Uh, so, Sean Crow just came out with a book recently, mm. uh, which features many interviews with Labor and Greens, current politicians and former politicians, about their relationship and quite a bit of it is focused on the 2010-2013 federal hung parliament mm. and one of the good book. big you know, one of the big dilemmas uh, that they faced and as often um, people have judged it after the fact is that labor probably could have said to the greens uh, you're not going to vote us down. We don't need to have a formal relationship with you. And I think they could have done that, but it would have made things less stable and would have made things harder in the day-to-day getting things through Parliament, which was hard enough. And I think I think that's a genuine challenge for them. And we've also seen situations in Tasmania in the 90s where Labor just said, it's not just that we're daring the Greens to vote us down, but we're, we're just not going to work with the Greens and the Liberals can have power. And that's you know what we saw in Tasmania in 96. So there definitely are other options and not just... It's not that their only option would be to do a formal coalition or a formal arrangement with the Greens. No. But I think generally they but, they um, do become more pragmatic after the election usually. Yes. The thing that worries me is that is when people that I think are Green voters naturally um, from Melbourne um, say they're over the Greens and the Greens are dead. And uh, that's, that's, you know, I suppose that's totally informal and it's social and it's people that I know that I think of as as. Greens mm. um, saying to me the Greens are dead and I don't know why or that they've been involved in uh, the campaigns for example in Batman you know one thing I was told was that you know there was sort of too, there was almost like there was too much money involved in the campaigns you know that it didn't feel real um, that it felt uh, sort of overfunded and there was free food and soft drink and it didn't feel like a genuine kind of spirit of protest I, I suppose um, I'm a little concerned that, that maybe that's the Greens... really are... important for the Greens' identity, that stuff about protest and fight and having a local campaign. And I, and I think that that's incredibly important. And I think that's where that tension comes between who their voters are and then who their activists are and how to actually manage that tension and those feelings around that and who the Greens become, you know, if they become the party of the upper middle class, then that is very different 
to the people who are fighting and protesting uh, and who have provided the energy for the Greens to get kind of where they are. So it's a very interesting thing to watch. Yeah, and I do wonder, I think possibly that feeling of disappointment or being over the Greens probably is stronger amongst the the members and the, or the ex-members and the ex-supporters of the Greens than necessarily is amongst the voters. And I think sometimes there is a bit of a difference between the people who vote for them and the people who activate them and provide their support. Um, but I still think like it's not a great place to be in if you are the Greens uh, to lose those people, even if they're not a big chunk of your voting base, but certainly in terms of the people who are the foot soldiers and provide the activism. And, you know, in the end, the Greens aren't as strong. They don't have as much power as the major parties and they rely on people caring about them and being inspired by them in a way that losing that inspiration could be a killer for a minor party in a way that it wouldn't be if you were the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. On stuff like polling booths, like you don't get people to staff polling booths if they don't feel passionate about a party and they don't feel a, feel a significant loyalty to spend eight hours standing in a polling booth handing out how to vote. So, and, you know, if you can't staff polling booths, you can't win seats. Hmm. Well, the um, yeah, I don't want to overstate. You know, one couple from Coburg who actually weren't members, but they just happen to be <laughs> friends of mine. But they, but they, but they said it, and it stuck in my head. And uh, and I suppose, yeah, the issues haven't gone away though. I mean, you never know. Jed Carney might struggle in uh, Cooper. You know, I mean, there's uh, the TPP. Um, you know, there's um, still, you know, um, Manus and Nauru, uh, people stuck there and Labor still kind of skewered over that. Yeah, I don't want to overstate it. And I mean, the mm. polls today says, you know, news poll today says the Greens sitting on 11%. So, you know, that's not too bad. Uh, but I suppose, you know, it, you would you would, you would hope that by now um, the party might be might be inching more up to 15%. Um you know, at this point in its history, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna come back to the upper house in a, in another show, and we're gonna talk again about the Greens and all the other parties and that, and that'll be the week before the election. But now I, I want to just touch on briefly another area in the state that I think is going to be really important. So the epicenter of the upcoming state election probably will be a series of Labor marginals in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Labor holds the marginal seats of Bentley, Carrum. Cranbourne, Mordialloc and Frankston, and all of them are held by margins of 2.3% or less. Labor lost all but one of these seats in 2010 before gaining them back in 2014. They were the only seats where a sitting Liberal MP lost to Labor in 2014. So in terms of the shift in the results of the last election, these seats were really crucial. So Elle, what do you think uh, will be the most critical issues in the South East in this election? Um, I think Labor's been very right to uh, have a lot of school spending down there because I think for people who live there, it's about uh, affording their house, sending their kids to school, making sure that there's good health care. And I think that um, they've made a lot of announcements of what they call community hospitals, which I believe, which I presume are those smaller kind of hospitals rather than the big regional ones. Um, and there's been an enormous amount of school spending in the marginal seats and uh, there's actually even a bit of crankiness in the, in the next door seats of like, why are we in safe seats? Because we get nothing for our schools. Um, so I think that the Labor's just been very, very focused on that um, sort of bread and butter, suburban issues. Um, and then the Liberals, again, like we said before, it's crime and it's really quite extraordinary how much they have, fo- have focused on crime. Um, with a, a dollar per significant race baiting in there. 
um, but there's been announcements of CCTV and uh, those kind of things. And, um, and they've kind of in the local papers say, you know, crime has gone up. And one of them, the, campaign, the candidate for, for, for Bentley, was talking about the cycle of crisis on Bentley Street, which I just thought you could not get more local uh, than that. One of the things I find interesting about what they often refer to as the sand belt is it's a it's quite a white area. When you think of the kind of outer suburban area like south southeastern Melbourne, uh, you know, it's there's a bit of a Bible belt down there, but you think of it as a relatively multicultural area, which the more inland areas are. But um Frankston, Karen, Morty Alec, uh, very, very monocultural compared very. to other it's parts of like Melbourne. It's a lot like south southern Sydney. So it's a lot like mm. Sutherland, Menai Cogra, those kind of areas in Sydney, um, and kind of heading down that way. It's an area that's gentrified a lot since, since certainly since I lived there. Frankston was a was a very poor area when I grew up in Melbourne. I'm also very old, uh, and um, and those other suburbs around were also not well off suburbs at all. But um, doing a little bit of homework, uh, you could see that for a lot of those areas that they had significantly gentrified um, and that as people are looking for more affordable housing, they've moved further down south. Like Frankston used to actually be quite a long way from Melbourne and be seen as somewhere that was very difficult to commute from and that's not the case anymore. You refer to it as being kind of similar to the Shire, um, although being a bit poorer and a lot more um, marginal in terms of where the vote is, it also reminds me a little bit of somewhere like Penrith, you know, a kind of uh, outer suburban um, Western Sydney area that is that has also been very marginal, but isn't isn't anywhere near as multicultural as its neighbours. So um, I think there's some there's some parallels there, and I think it's going to definitely be somewhere that we should be watching uh, when we when we get to election night. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to Elle and Paddy for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Paddy. Cheers. Uh, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode, and once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>